It's been so good, hasn't it, to enter into God's presence through worship. Good morning. My name's Paul Crothers. I should introduce myself. Paul Crothers. I'm part of the ministry team, and I add my welcome to Glenda's, especially to those that are online with us as well. Great to have you with us. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series in 1 Timothy, and uh, I guess I've never preached through the book of 1 Timothy before, but the passage that we're in this morning, I have preached on one occasion previously, and I guess you know I've been preaching for close to 20 years, I've been in pastoral ministry for close to 20 years, and in all the time that I've preached... Uh, through those two decades, I've never once been uh, egged or had rotten tomatoes thrown at me. But when I preached this passage to a group of young people around about 12 years ago or so, it was as close as I ever came. And I think that if they just happened to be prepared with either rotten tomatoes or eggs, I may well warn a few on that day when I read out this passage. So today we're in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. And it says this. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, uh, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. At, at that point, 12 years ago, they're out of their seats. <laughs> for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness and propriety. This is not the passage that one would choose to preach from. But the good thing about the discipline of working through a book of the Bible is that you don't get to choose the passages. And if we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, then we need to be able to sit in this passage today and to understand what it is that it's saying to us in our context here at New Peninsula Baptist Church. I love how a butterfly comes about. Uh, we all know the story of the butterfly. It starts, so it starts with the, the lava and then it forms into a caterpillar and the caterpillar lives for a little while, uh, anyway between about a month up to 12 months, depending on the species of the butterfly. Uh, but in time, the caterpillar decides it's had enough being a caterpillar, and so it finds a nice spot, it wraps itself up in a cocoon, and it waits, and it goes through a metamorphosis. And in good time, the, the, the butterfly then starts to break free from the cocoon, and it takes flight. And we see in the butterfly, I don't know, have you ever been to the Melbourne Zoo, the butterfly house that they've got there? I, I quite love that space. It's warm, so if you're looking for a good, warm place to go in the middle of winter, go there. Uh, but it's warm, but, it, but it's a great spot. Kids love it. When our kids were young, we used to take them all the time. We'd go there regularly. And these butterflies, you know, they'd be all over the place, flapping around, beautiful, stunning creatures, God's creation. The passage that we're in today 
whatever the views that we have on it, and maybe after today your view might be changed, maybe after today your view that you have might be affirmed, I don't know. But, but whatever the views that we come to with this passage, the reality is that in the church, it's been a bit like a cocoon. A cocoon. It's, it's wrapped us up. It's a passage that has caused division and polarisation. And because we've become so focused on one issue in this particular passage, what we've missed is the hidden beauty that sits in the passage. Today, I want to let the butterfly take its wings. We're going to address the cocoon. But I want to see the butterfly take flight. Whenever we come across a, a passage of Scripture that is, is problematic and then we look at it and we, we, we think, what is this saying to us? Especially when it seems to be the antithesis of what our society or culture would say is right and true. You know, we've got to sit with it. We've got to understand what is it saying with us? Well, when we come across a passage like this, what we need to do is to apply some filters to it. And I want to suggest three filters today that help us to understand passages like this, which come at us and are somewhat problematic. The first filter is the filter of situation. When we come to a passage like this, what we need to do is to do some work on understanding the situation that it was being written into. Paul's writing to Timothy Paul has said to Timothy, I want you to go to the church of Ephesus. This is a church that Paul has planted previously, but he's now no longer in Ephesus. He's elsewhere. He's traveling, preaching the gospel around. And he says to Timothy, I need you to go back to Ephesus because I'm hearing some things which are concerning to me. And I need you to go there and to provide leadership and to support and to help the church navigate these difficulties. There's some false teachers that have come in. They're trying to take the church away from the trueness of God's grace and the gospel. And I want you to go and sort them out. It's interesting, Paul spent longer in Ephesus planning the church than he did in any other churches around about three years. And so Paul sends Timothy and then he writes this letter to Timothy encouraging the younger Timothy in his leadership, in his faith, in the leadership that he needed to provide to the church. And he's writing an affirmation and an encouragement to him. And Paul is writing here into the context and the situation that Timothy found himself in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was known for a particular temple. It's going to be up on the screen. That's a reproduction of what they think this temple looked like. It's the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the religious cult of the day that was common in the town of Ephesus. There's some interesting things about this religious cult. The first thing that its temple was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was made of marble columns. It was incredibly opulent. It was an amazing structure and building. Artemis, or Diana as the Romans called her, was a female deity. This was a religious cult that was built around a female deity. Now, in order to be a priest of the religious cult of Artemis, you could only be a female. It was not possible for males to be priests in this religious cult. It's really fascinating because what you have here in the broader society of the ancient Greco-Roman society is that it's a very patriarchal society. 
Male dominates. And women generally are there to serve and to be subservient. But we find in the midst of this a religious cult where the opposite is true. The female is dominating. And so it's into this context that Paul is writing, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. What is he saying here? Well, in broader society, the pendulum had sung, uh, swung way out there so that it was totally and utterly male-dominated. And in the cult of Artemis, it had swung back the other way completely where it was totally and utterly female-dominated. And there's a sense here where Paul is bringing about a correction. He's trying to get the pendulum to swing back. Because what would often happen, it's happened in the early church. It happens even as churches are established today. Dare I say it, it happens even in our church today. Is that we bring our cultural baggage with us. We can't help it. We're framed by the culture that we live in. And we bring that with it until it gets exposed to the gospel and the good news of Jesus. We don't see the transformation take place. And that's a journey often. It's not always an instantaneous thing. It's a journey of growth that we go on. And in the early church in Ephesus, what we have here is a group of Christians that are coming out of this religious cult of Artemis. And they're bringing some of that baggage with them. And Paul is trying to correct the the, the pendulum swing. He's bringing it back. But the question we might ask is, how far is he bringing it back? Is he bringing it back to somewhere in the middle or is he bringing it right back over to the other side where it's male-dominated? The situation filter helps us to some extent, but we need to apply an additional two filters. The second filter is the filter of substance. We need to unpack here what is the substance that Paul is actually trying to communicate when he's writing these words to Timothy. And in order for us to do this, we need to go into the original language and understand the intent of the original language and what it is that Paul is actually communicating here. But that's not always easy. Throughout the last hundred years or so, Through the emergence of organizations like Wycliffe, Bible Translators and others, God's word has been made freely available in multitudes of different languages. It's an incredible and amazing work that God's word is available in so many different languages, in the mother language of so many different people. It's so important. But it's problematic in terms of how you translate scripture into different cultures and different languages. One of the the judgment calls that linguists and translators need to continually make is what are the words that we have here in English and how do they translate into new and different languages and cultures? Because sometimes there's not always a directly translatable word. There's some challenges around that and you talk to any linguist, any translator, any Bible translator and they will be able to talk to you about some of the challenges they experience in their work. Now, we have an additional challenge, and that is that most of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, ancient Greek. It's a language that is no longer spoken, a dead language. Now, now modern Greek has some connection and there's some similarities, but by and large, Koine Greek is a dead language. 
And so over the history of the church, scholars have had to do a lot of research and, and get a lot of understanding around what the different intent of the language is, the Koine Greek language. And there's been debate. And there's been argument, there's been discussion, it's all happened. And the passage that we're in today is one such passage where that has been the case. The Greek word that Paul uses for authority in this passage is authentine. It's actually a really unusual word. It's the only time that it's recorded or used in the entire New Testament. Even amongst other texts, other non-biblical texts in Koine Greek, it is a very, very uncommon word. And the exact nature and understanding of the substance of this word has been the place of much debate. But, but like anything, as uh, people continue to research and develop their understanding and grow their understanding into God's word, more and more uh, discoveries and understandings get made. And, and this is one such word. Not all, but the majority of New Testament biblical scholars, these are people that are lovers of God's word. These are people that are first and foremost going to honour God's word. I'm talking about people here that come out of a conservative and evangelical tradition, most of them. And the majority, not all, but the majority would say the, the deeper substance or the deeper meaning of this word, authentine, is where one person exercised dominance over another. It's where one person is aggressive towards the other. It's where one person is exercising their leadership in such a way that it's about self-interest, not about the flourishing of the other. So when we look at what is happening here in the situation and we add to that the substance, we're starting to get a bit of a picture here, perhaps. That what Paul might actually be saying is that I do not permit a woman to be dominant in a self-interested or aggressive way over a man. But we find even here, when we apply the filters of situation and substance that there is still doubt. So what do we do? We go to the third filter, and that's the filter of support. This is where we look at what else it says in other parts of Scripture. Is there an argument either for or against elsewhere in Scripture? And as we look at this, I think for me personally, I start to land in a particular position on this issue. We could go back to the Old Testament. We could go way back to the book of Judges, very early on in the Old Testament. And we have a prophetess, Deborah, who has been raised up by God to bring uh, victory and freedom from foreign oppressors for the Israelites. A woman who was given authority. 
and she led well and God used her to bring peace, lasting peace, four decades worth of peace to the land. We, we can fast forward a little bit more. Maybe we can go to the book of Esther. Here is a young Jewish girl, a very attractive Jewish girl, and a foreign king looked upon her and desired her, and he decided that she would be his wife, and so it was. And within the king's court, there were people there that were determined and intent on committing genocide against the Israelites. They wanted them wiped out. And they had started to convince the king that this would be a good idea. And so Esther, with the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai, goes to the king at great danger and risk to herself. And she speaks up on behalf of her people. She demonstrates leadership. The king listens. And God is merciful. And the genocide is avoided. We could fast forward a bit more. We could go into the New Testament. Let's have a look at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke's an amazing book on a lot of different levels. But one of the things that we notice in the Gospel of Luke is how the role of women is elevated in Luke's writing. Now, remember that this is a, a patriarchal society. This is a society that the broader society, it's male-dominated. Women are subservient. In fact, the Jewish history, Josephus was quoted as saying that you'd rather be a slave or the household pet than be a woman in that society. And yet in the Gospel of Luke, what do we see? We see women being healed. We see women being given prominent roles. In Luke chapter 8, it's the women disciples who are supporting and financing Jesus' ministry. We could go to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the morning which Jesus has, has, has beaten death. He's raised again. And who is the first person there that goes and sees? It's Mary Magdalene. And what does she do? She runs to the disciples. She goes to the disciples. She tells them the good news of Jesus. He's defeated death. In church history, Mary is known as the apostle to the apostles. The very first person to share the good news of Jesus defeating death was a woman. We could go into the book of Acts. And again, throughout the book of Acts, you see these women, Luke's writing again, playing prominent roles. Whether it's Lydia or Priscilla or Damaris, there's these different women that are mentioned in the book of Acts that are not just there cooking the food or doing other things as great as those roles are. Here are women that are bringing people to Jesus, that are providing leadership in the early church. We could go to Paul's writings in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 16. He's signing off. He's giving some farewells. He's making some concluding remarks. And he mentions an apostle by the name of Junia, a female apostle. We could go to Galatians chapter 3. Some of the most magnificent and soaring writing that we find from Paul in all of Scripture, I think. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there man or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I know this passage is problematic. 
And I know amongst a group here that there, there will be people that will not have this same position as what I do. And you know what? That's okay. We can agree to disagree. I don't mind doing that. But for me, when I put these three filters together, I'm very comfortable. In fact, not only am I comfortable, I am fully supportive of females exercising leadership, exercising any leadership role in the church and in broader society. Now, as I said, you might not agree, and that's okay, but we needed to address the cocoon at least. We needed to speak to the cocoon. We needed to, to speak to that which has wrapped us up with division and polarization in order for, to, to find the hidden beauty in this passage. And this is really where I want to land it today. In our society today, just as it was in Paul's day, there, there were stereotypes. There was a stereotypical behavior that was expected of a man. There was a stereotypical behavior that was expected of a female. Now, in our society today, what does that look like? Well, you could jump to a few conclusions. It might be that you're really into cricket and you're into footy and you like drinking a beer. Um, You've got your mates. Just don't talk too deeply with your mates. Don't go, you know, be relationally a bit uh, aloof and distance. Don't show emotion. You can see what I've got. We've got some stereotypes of what a male is meant to look like in our society today. But females have stereotypes as well. Are you into shopping? Do you like nice things? Do you dress nice? Do you like interior decorating? Do you like things of great beauty, things that smell nice? All of that sort of stuff. You know, there's stereotypes around females as well. But what I believe Paul is saying in this passage is that we are to break free of the stereotype. There's a freedom here. Let's have a look. Verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. This is not the language of a person that is emotionally distant. This is the language of passion. This is the language of emotion. Paul's not just saying, oh man, if you feel like it, pray. Wants men everywhere to pray, to lift up holy hands. Men, we're told we can't be emotional. We're trained from a young age to be reserved, even aloof with our emotions. And that plays out in how we connect with God sometimes. We keep it all nice and neat in a bit of a box. Lift up your holy hands in prayer. Man, there's a role for us here. 
This is the role of bringing renewal. It's the role of renewing, seeing God's renewing coming into the lives of our own lives, of our families, of in our church, of in our broader society and our community. Lift up holy hands in prayer. Men, we're free. We're free from the stereotype. In verse 9, Paul talks about how women are dressed modestly. Again, this was a reflection of the, the female priests and the way in which they would dress in the, the cult of Artemis. But it tells women to dress modestly and that the dress that they need to focus on is their, their, their dress of good deeds. Their dress of good deeds. So women, you're free today too. You're free from needing to look a certain way. You're free from needing to own certain stuff. You're free from needing to compare yourself with others. You're free. And you're invited into something. You see, I believe that God's already at work. He's already at work in our church. He's already at work in our society. See, God is a missionary God. At the very beginning of the Bible, the first few words of the Bible is is an act of self-revelation in itself, in the beginning, God. And throughout the ages, God has been at work, wooing people to him, wooing you and me to him. And that work continues today. In fact, we know, and, and current research is telling us, that there's a, a greater openness to the things of faith at this time, right now, than what there has been previously. God is at work. And we're invited in. We're invited to partner with him. We're free to partner with his redeeming work. When I was younger, not that much younger, it was actually when my kids were younger, so about five years ago or so, and as I was putting them to bed, we would have a, a, a bit of a game, you know, and you, you're probably well familiar with this sort of game, you know, you know, how much do you love me, Dad? How much do you love me, Dad? Oh, mate, I love you this much, this much. No, 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 how much do you love me, Dad? No, no, well, I love you, I love you this much, I love you this much. And the questions keep going, and I think, oh, maybe I, oh, I think I love you this much. And they knew what the real answer was, and the final question, Dad, how much do you love me? I love you more than this much. And Jesus looked down on the cross. What he said to us is, I love you more than this much. Why did he allow this to happen? Why did he defeat death? Why was he raised back to life? It was so we could have that full life in him, the very best life in him. It's so that we could be forgiven. And it's so that we can be free. 
in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. That speaks to the freedom that Christ has for us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As we finish up this morning, I just think there might be some people here in the room and also that have connected with us online. And maybe you don't feel free. Maybe there's some things going on that are just binding you up, a bit like being wrapped in a cocoon even. Maybe it is some form of addiction or bonding, bondage or, or maybe there's some uh, fracturing of relationship or, or maybe there's some financial concern or maybe some health issues or whatever it is, but there's this sense of like not feeling free. Well, this morning I want to introduce you to he who will make you free. The best decision that anyone could make in their life is to put their trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you, in love, allowed yourself to be hung on that cross, but that you defeated death. You arose from to life again and in love you've brought to us the full life the forgiveness and the freedom and lord i want to pray for those that are amongst us this morning particularly for whom that is not their reality at the moment And maybe there are even some, whether it's here this morning or online, for whom have never yet have put their decision, made that decision to put their trust in Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning to take the step, to make a step towards him and to say a prayer as simple as this. Jesus, I need you. As hard as it is, I want to put my trust in you. I want to follow you. I want you to forgive me for that which I've done, which has brought damage to myself and others around me. I want you to bring the fullness of life that you promise. And Lord, I want freedom. If that is you this morning, I encourage you not to leave without talking to someone. There'll be some people over to my left and your right that are available to pray. Pastors will be down the front. If you're online, get in touch with us, office at newpeninsula.com.au. But we are free today. We are free indeed. And to Jesus, we say thank you. And we give our praise to him.